I thank the Lord that he has blessed us with another Lord's Day. Another day set aside to worship him, to lay aside our tears and our fears and our troubles, our distresses, our distractions, and even good things that can take our mind from the worship. May God preserve us from it. Let me welcome all of you again. We're very glad to see you here this morning. We have had much sickness working its way through the congregation. So we pray for all of those who are sick. Pray that God will restore them to us soon. We also know some travel. <clears throat> we are glad to see you here this morning. If you have a cell phone, would you please check it now and make sure that it is on mute. <clears throat> I think everybody here knows our routine about our children, so we'll spare that time and leave that for another time. This morning, uh, we will continue in the letter to the Hebrews. If you would turn there, please. Hebrews, we're going to read beginning in chapter 1, verses 5 through 14. I've mentioned on several occasions that verse 4 is something of a hinge verse or a portal. It takes us from verses 1 through 3 into the arguments of verses 5 through 14. It introduces the angels and now the author, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, is going to develop the arguments that he set forth in those first three verses, or perhaps better than saying an argument, is the themes that he brought up, and he will trace them throughout the epistle. So he will do that beginning in verse 5. <clears throat> if you would stand with me once more as we give our attention to God's living word, <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 5 this morning. This is God's word. <clears throat> For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels he saith, Who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the Son... He saith, Thy throne, O God, 
is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth a garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Amen. This is the word of God. Please remain standing for prayer. Father, Thou art all-glorious, sovereign Lord, victorious. We come before Thee to worship and adore Thee. I ask Thee, righteous God, Thou that dost love Thy people, I pray that Thou wouldst be generous in the outpouring of Thy Spirit. Some of Thy children, Lord, need a fresh touch from Thee. We ask in thy great blessings that thou wouldst come, whatever the condition, the overburdened, the troubled. Father, those who are wrestling hard with sin. Those, O oh God, who have known defeat at moments. Lord God, comfort them. We have an advocate with the Father. May every eye be turned to thee. May every sin be hateful in our eyes. And yet, O oh God, may the one who has poured out his blood to cover our sins always be glorious and delightful and the desire of our eyes. Oh, may thy sweet and tender love fall upon thy people today, O oh God. Whatever the condition, those that are weeping, wipe away their tears. Father, those whose bodies are collapsing under them. How I pray that thou wouldst give them strength and that they would find their hope and their joy in Christ Jesus the Lord. I pray for my own beloved wife. Have mercy upon her today and all those who are sick. My Father, for those who are rejoicing in thee, who have been on the mountaintop with thee this week, May their hearts light up. I trust they came in lit up with praise. That there was the fire of love burning hot for thee. Meet with us. Lord, we read thy word. We know that thou dost send thy spirit. We know that we can grieve and quench thy spirit. O Father, wheresoever any of us, beginning with me, and all here, Lord, if we are grieving thy spirit in various ways, 
Please have mercy upon us that we might walk in thy way without hindrance, without stumbling, without stumbling others. Please, O oh God, we need thee. Banish in our thinking all self-confidence. Fill our souls with Christ confidence. May we have confidence in him who loved us, gave himself for us, died upon Calvary's cross, rose from the dead, ascended into glory. The one who is interceding for us now, who cannot fail us. O oh Christ, shower us with thy blessings. We want thee. We need thee. The flesh the arm of the flesh will fail us, and it has, and it does regularly. Father, may thy very spirit, Christ, may thy intercession and Holy Spirit, that gale force of God, that, li that live creating power of God, move in these hearts, warm us to thee. Father, does anyone here hold any grudge against another? Help us, O oh God, to come to thee and to go to them. Help, O oh righteous God, and make our path straight. We want to know thy visitations. Father, we will not understand a word in this book today. I will not preach one syllable out of this book today except Thy Spirit, come and help us. <clears throat> if all people here are my studies, they will go away poverty-stricken. Father, if they hear thy word living and dealing with them, whether in encouragement or whether in reproof and rebuke or whether it is in that glorious honey of thy love, that is sweet. Whatever. Come and deal with us. And now we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. This spirit-breathed letter begins with a simple three-letter word, God. We began this series with six messages attempting to define and describe from Scripture the wonder, the splendor, the beauty, the majesty, the glory the immensity of that three-letter word. I could not express it in its fullness. You and I could not process it in its fullness. Nor could we respond to it 
in its fullness. But we thank him for every ray of light and understanding he granted us. We can, by grace, through faith, worship God with our whole hearts. And we're called on by Scripture. Heaven calls us, love me with the whole heart. Not three quarters, not 90%, certainly not 50%, certainly not heartless. There's nothing more offensive to God than heartless worship because it is, in no sense, worship. So, <clears throat> we want to know this God. We want to love and worship and walk with this God. And we can, by the Spirit of God, by preparing our hearts, by stoking the fires of love's flame in our heart for six days, and then coming to worship Him on His day. There are times when I've prayed before this God, and I've had to confess, I'm not sure I've ever done anything with my whole heart except sin. I did that with every fiber of my being. And that is why in these days, in the light and the sweetness of God's love, <clears throat> I try to outdistance how much I loved my sin. And try to replace that by coming to his word, taking it in, meditating on him, and then pouring out my praise to him. Do you praise God at home? I hope you do. I know that many of you do. And for that, I am delighted. Now, along with our attempt to get some glimpse of God in our earlier messages, we pondered three questions. What do you see? What do you hear? What do you think when you read the first four verses of this letter? These words reveal the object of our worship. The person of our God. We saw in our Bibles that God is triune within the nature of the one God, which is spirit. There are three eternal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is our God. This is our God. This should be the only object of our worship. And again, by God's grace, by God's mercy, as wholehearted a worship as we can offer. 
does, does knowing who God is bring us to profound thought? How do you love God with all your mind if you don't think about him? What is it that you are actually saying about yourself if your mind does not engage constantly? I don't mean every second of the 24 hours of the day. Obviously, we are engaged in all kinds of things. But how many times at work do you stop your head for 30 seconds and say, oh God, thank you for the work you've given me. Thank you for the wife you've given me or the spouse you've given me. Thank you. Thank you that today I'm alive to serve you. I mean, do we really worship or do we think it's just coming, picking up a hymnal, singing a few hymns, you know, uh, listening to a long or a short sermon and going home? Brethren, when I came here, I wanted with all of my might to knock down much of what I had grown up with of American religion. It still tries to creep in here a lot. We replace it very simply with love for God and obedience to what he reveals to us. Does having God set before us, as this letter does, does it drive you to profound thought? Do you think about him? And what do you think? Apart from, Lord, heal my spouse. Please heal my marriage. Help me to find a job. Those are all important things. We can pray about them, and we should. And we should pray about them earnestly. But do we praise him just because he is God, does it make us think that every single thing we're doing is sustained by his power? Does, does it move us to reverence when God is set before us? Does it provoke us to worship and thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord, that I had food today. Thank you that I have clothes to cover my nakedness. Thank you, O God, for thy holy Son, whose precious blood has washed me clean. Or are the words God and Jesus just kind of floating in our minds as religious furniture or religious butterflies? Brethren, God wants us to know him and walk with him. As I have been doing some sermons from the epistle to John, or the, or the first epistle of John, on Wednesday evenings, I've been struck again and again with how often he says, so that you will know, so that you will know. Well, do we know? Why do we think we know? It can only come from the Spirit's work in our hearts in accord with the Word of God. And the Word of God has been set before us. 
God, who at various times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. Does any sense of awe grip you at, at all when we say God speaks to us? Why in the world is it in the scriptures if it in some way does not impress our minds with who God is and what he does in his love for us? I have not always been a good listener to my wife. Probably the only man in the world that's had that problem. But should you ever have that, I'm glad to talk with you about it. It brought up a saying in our home. No doubt you have home sayings, right? There are some things that you make kind of your family talk. And you label things. Maybe you don't. Mine may be a unique house, but I don't think so. That has brought into our home my Failing to hear my wife well sometimes has brought this saying into our house. She says it, then I says it. Oh, that must have been one of the times I wasn't listening to you. Remember when I told you, no, oh, that must be one of the times you were not listening to me. Right? Now, <clears throat> let's amplify that a little bit. How about in our walk with the Lord? How much has he told us from Genesis to Revelation? <clears throat> How many times have we done something and said, why did I do that? How could I do that? Well, perhaps there are a lot of reasons for that, but perhaps one of those reasons might be that was one of those times you were not listening. We need to listen because God has spoken to us by his son. I'm interested as I watch our families from time to time. I watch them in fellowship. <clears throat> and there will be those times when a little one comes up and starts pulling on mama's dress. Or patting mommy on the leg. Or daddy. Or coming and quietly laying a hand on their shoulder like a good Quaker. <clears throat> and there will be times when parents say, not now, I'm talking. And they'll go back to their discussion. Well, we all know that, at least in some degree. It's different from house to house. But the fact of the matter is, we want some discussions to be uninterrupted and I would say we're probably all mm, possibly weak in the interruptions in our conversations with God. We should do what we can. We should fight. We should even have in our family an understanding that when daddy's reading the word of God, it's time to be quiet. <clears throat> John G. Payton's children knew when his father would go into the, when their father would go into the inner room of the house to pray. 
And they knew that when daddy was in there talking to God. They were to tiptoe quietly past that closet. Because some conversation should not be interrupted. Brethren, are we letting things interrupt our conversations with God? I know it happens to me. And it is a great struggle to keep those kind of distractions out of the conversation. Why am I talking about this? Because God is speaking to us in Jesus Christ, by Jesus Christ, for Jesus Christ, for his glory and for our benefit. Are we listening? How easy is it for us while we're reading the Bible to drift off into some thought of what's going on? How easy is it for us when uh, there is preaching of God's living word and we're off in another world. When we hear God, when we hear the word of God, are we listening? The epistle to the Hebrews is certainly about hearing God. It's an important message. We don't want to miss it. My friends, without the Holy Spirit illuminating our hearts, we must all answer no to those questions unless the Lord helps us. Do we have profound thought? No. Does it move us to reverence? Uh, no. Just another sermon. Does it provoke us to worship? Um. What was he talking about? We have to say no without the Holy Spirit illuminating our hearts. We should be praying daily that whether we worship in our personal worship, our family worship, or our corporate worship, that we will hear God, that we will have faith by his Spirit to hear him and to love him and to walk with him. You have an enemy that will do everything, everything he can to disrupt that. In fact, you have three. <laughs> the world, the flesh, and the devil. So, without the Holy Spirit, the word God is just a three-letter word on the page. That's it. Not something that provokes love, that provokes action. And I can assure you, God gave his word to provoke us to respond. When the Holy Spirit sheds abroad the love of God in our hearts, we are able to answer those questions with, yes, Yes, it is possible to have profound thought, deep thought, reverence, and heartfelt worship for God when the Spirit of God comes, when the Spirit of God sheds abroad the love of God in our hearts. We will say yes. 
Yes, it makes me think. It makes me reply to him. <clears throat> so, when the Holy Spirit reveals the truth of that three-letter word to our inner man, our hearts should respond, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Now, attempting to meditate on an unsearchable God ought to give you some profound thought, right? So are we loving God? Are we loving him with our heart? Are we loving him with our soul? Are we loving him with our mind? We'll find little change in our lives if our answer is no to those things. But the mystery... The beauty and the awe of our triune God do not stop there. While our hearts and minds grapple with thoughts of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as one God, this portion of Hebrews reveals and leads us to another deep mystery. <clears throat> the mystery of God's Son, the God-Man who is truly God, truly man, in one person. The Holy Spirit has pronounced seven assertions, seven descriptions about the God-man in those first three verses. And they reveal his true deity and his true humanity. And this passage that we have considered in reading, presents him enthroned in regal glory at the right hand of the majesty on high. It sets before us the king of the universe, the most important person we can know. He can't be bribed. He can't be voted out of office. He is the king. You have a king. But because we all live in a so-called democracy, established to be a republic, and because we've all bought the poison that we are all equal in the same way, we're not. <clears throat> but because we've bought all that, we think my opinion is as good as anybody else's. I hate to tell you, but that's not true. You are important because you are an image bearer of the living God. But depending on who God has put over you, word we don't like, we have a responsibility. Wives to their husbands, children to their parents, husbands and fathers to God himself through Christ. We're under particular rule of our local government, of our state government. All your life, you're going to be under authority and there will be times when your opinion will not matter one bit. One bit. Hmm. So we have a king 
And we need to bring all of our thoughts, all of our troubles, all of our concerns, all of those things that get deep down within us and cause turmoil, or even those things that fill us with joy that we can let become idolatrous. We need to bring all of that to the Lord and say, um, teach me about these things. My opinion doesn't match yours. Help me to walk with you. He will do that. You say, well, if, if, you don't, if you don't think everybody's got a right to this or that, it's like, no, no, I'm not saying that. We have rights. We have a constitution. We have a Bible as Christians. We have rights. We have responsibilities. All right? Equally, before the law, we should be judged. There's where we should see genuine equality. But what I am saying is that <clears throat> I, I know what it's like to, sit, to have a doctor, to sit down with a doctor, and he says, I think I want you to do this. I want to prescribe this. And you say, oh, well, I, I read on the, on the Internet that um, that wasn't good for you. They don't generally go, oh, send me the link. It doesn't happen, right? Because our opinion and his $100,000 <laughs> schooling that he went through uh, don't match. We tend to think it does. Oh, I read in McCullough today about this. So that's the way it is. We can't do that with God's word. <clears throat> we need to come humbly and say, teach us. Teach us. Teach us. And that's exactly what's happening here. God speaks. God speaks through his son. And he tells us about his son. And now the author of Hebrews is going to argue from scripture. So that we will know exactly who Jesus Christ is. And what he has done. You want to hear that. Your opinions about that don't matter. Your submission to what he's saying to us is what matters. Now again, I'm not saying that I'm perfect in my preaching. And everyone should be Berean. I do understand. This has been my year of public faults. <clears throat> but what everyone needs to understand is that when God speaks through his weak and pathetic servants. We should hear, we should strain to hear God. And every pastor should do everything he can and not get in the way. Why? Because our God is set before us here. In as clear a language as anywhere in the Bible. You will see the God-man Throughout the 13 chapters of Hebrews, you will see the God-man over and over. And you will see the Trinity here and there. It's obvious that it's talking about God the Father in some places. It's talking about God the Son in other places. It's talking about the Holy Spirit and yet others. Not only that, it talks about this world and it talks about the world to come. There's two worlds in this letter. 
And it's vital that we understand that for our interpretation. So, as I said, the Holy Spirit has pronounced seven assertions, seven uh, descriptions of the God-man that reveal his true deity. They reveal his true humanity. They reveal his great work. And this passage from, verses, uh, from verse 5 to 14 presents him enthroned in royal, kingly glory. So the Holy Spirit focuses on the deity of the Son to teach us that the Son of God is better than the mighty angels of God. <clears throat> in fact, we can, we can say it this way. The focus in chapter 1 is the God-man's deity. The focus in chapter 2 is the God-man's humanity. Both are put together. And there are elaborate arguments from the Scripture to support all of it. Are we listening do you see your God here? When you see him, do you love him? Do you see him and think of his astonishing love for you? Do you think about him? The very object of eternal worship, agreeing to become a man, to uniting with creation so that he could die. When you hear this word of God set before you, it should drive you to thought. It should drive you to reverence. It should drive us all to worship. Well, so our message is entitled, God's Son Better Than Angels. This is part three. May the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ grant us the spirit of truth that we may by faith Love, obey, and worship our holy God. May he give us hearing ears, seeing eyes today. Well, our first major thought is David's greater son is God's son. Let me say that again. David's greater son is God's son. Now, we've learned last week that there are two ways of understanding that. We want to look at this just a little more closely as we move on with these verses. Jesus is David's messianic king. Jesus is David's son. All right, now. The author of Hebrews asks in verse 5, For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee? The answer is obvious, not one. It applies to the Christ alone, who had fulfilled the covenant of redemption, given to him in eternity before the creation of the universe. So the Holy Spirit moved the earthly writer of Hebrews to contrast the enthroned Son of God with the mighty angels of God. 
Now, as we will see next week, God willing, the angels are mighty beings. And they figured prominently in the history of the Old Testament saints and even in the early days of the church. While we do not see them generally, generally they're kind of like UFOs. We hear about sightings all the time. But I don't know that anyone has given any convincing evidence. But nonetheless, uh, we will learn that these mighty beings are important. They're important in our lives. We are the heirs of salvation, and they minister to us, as we will see. But we're not to worship angels. That's the problem. <clears throat> and because they are supernatural beings, it is one of the reasons that demons over the millennia have been able to get the worship of men. They are fallen angels. They are powerful beings. Now, having said that, the author does set before us the contrast. Christ and the angels. The angels were very important to the Jews. And that's why this is an important matter in the letter. <clears throat> so the Holy Spirit moved the earthly writer of Hebrews to contrast the Son of God with those mighty beings. The author does that by building his arguments upon Old Testament scripture, which was the Bible of the early church. First of all, there weren't nice leather-bound Bibles like we have today. That didn't exist. Uh, <clears throat> there were scrolls, there were papyri, there were copies. <clears throat> but the Bible of the early church was the Old Testament. Christ is found there. So, <clears throat> in part two of this particular message, we learned that the author of Hebrews appeals first to the Davidic covenant to exalt Christ Jesus on his heavenly throne. That's his purpose. He goes to that place in the Old Testament to turn our hearts to the glory of Christ enthroned in heaven. <clears throat> but those of you not familiar with the covenants, I'd be glad to recommend works uh, from the perspective of our confession that would be very helpful to you. I do hope before the Lord takes me to do some teaching uh, specifically on the covenants. I was just really beginning to do that as we were working through Galatians. I'm, uh, Galatians is on hold right now. So he applies Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 to the Son. We looked at this in some detail last week. I'm not going to repeat all of that. Uh, if you missed that message, uh, perhaps uh, uh, going and listening to it uh, on the Internet or downloading it would be helpful to you. Psalm 2 was the coronation psalm of a Davidic king. Now, coronation, children means the day that a king or a queen is crowned. 
<clears throat> so Psalm 2 is a coronation psalm of a Davidic king, a king that comes from the line of David. But it was fulfilled as the coronation psalm of Messiah the king. That's exactly why he quotes it here in Hebrews. When he had purged our sins, when he had accomplished the purpose of the covenant of redemption, when he ascended into glory and sat down at the Father's right hand, was coronation day. This is when he began to reign in his kingdom. He was the king before the foundation of the world. He was the king when he was born in Bethlehem. He was the king throughout his entire life, but he wasn't reigning over the messianic kingdom until he sat down at the Father's right hand. So that's why Psalm 2 is applied to him there. Thou art my son. And he is the ultimate Davidic king. He came from the line of David. Now the author builds Psalm 2-7 on the foundation of 2 Samuel 7-14. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. In the Davidic covenant, God made extraordinary promises to David. <clears throat> In that passage, David's earthly son, Solomon, inherited his father's throne and built God an earthly house. Solomon was certainly a fulfillment of that. But there are certain things in the promise that couldn't be applied to Solomon. Solomon's dead. We said it last week. There's only three ways that David's kingdom could go forever. Either David lives forever. Well, that's over. Either one of his sons in the, in the Judean line uh, lives forever or he has, uh, I'm sorry, uh, one of his sons, son after son after son after son after son after son after son, that would keep the kingdom forever. It would just have an unending. What would be unending would be the line. But the third option is the only option that works with this, and it's that he had one son that lived forever, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one. He is the glorious Davidic Messiah. He is Messiah the King. God's covenant with David promised that his house, his kingdom, his throne would be established forever. But David's earthly rule, Solomon's earthly rule, the th and the rule of all the Davidic kings came to an end. But the fulfillment of God's promise to David of an eternal kingdom came in the person of Jesus Christ. He established that kingdom when he came. He, he is, he was the king of the kingdom but he was not ruling it then. He's ruling it now. Psalm 2 is piggybacked right on 2 Samuel. <clears throat> it's, there's an unending stream because Jesus lives forever. There's not another son. He has inherited it. 
It was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. That's the Davidic promise. And then it goes on to say, <clears throat> There shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. That is the Davidic promise. And that is Christ who fulfills it. On earth, at that time, he was not reigning in the kingdom. But when he ascended into glory, he began that astonishing reign. That is precisely why the writer of Hebrews goes to Psalm 2, piggybacked on 2 Samuel 7, verse 14. <clears throat> now, It does say the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this, and that is exactly what we see. That is what is being celebrated in the opening chapter of Hebrews. Christ's ascension, Christ's seating at the Father's right hand. Now, that's the throne upon which the Son sat on the right hand of the majesty on high. So that brings us to our next thought. Jesus is to be worshipped, not angels. <clears throat> the sacred text says, and again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, let all the angels of God worship him. This is a truly astonishing statement. Astonishing. It is also one of the most debated verses in this book. Theologians, commentators, <clears throat> and we'll talk about it for a very brief moment. Uh, I will not be able, just as with Matthew, I was not able to go into every challenge, difficulty between commentators and, and pastors and theologians over the years, how we understand particular passages. But this one is hotly debated. It, it is a regular dispute. So the question is, what verse from the Old Testament is quoted here? We read Hebrews and we read the verse. Uh, many of us, as I, I mentioned before, I know when I first used to read the scriptures, I never went and looked up where the scriptures were quoted. I mean, I had a Bible that pointed it out. And yet uh, uh, I, was, I just wanted to keep running through the zoo. I just wanted to keep running to the next thing and the next thing, not backing up. That, that was a mistake. I have plenty. <clears throat> you can, uh, if you have some mistakes, you can come and check my catalog. I probably have made it. So Deuteronomy 32.43. Deuteronomy 32.43 in the Masoretic Hebrew text of the Old Testament does not contain the clause 
and let all the angels of God worship him. That was something of a mouthful. Let me make sure you get that. All right. Deuteronomy 32.43 in the Masoretic Hebrew text of the Old Testament does not contain the clause. And let all the angels of God worship him. The Masoretic text, now if you're not familiar with that term, <clears throat> the Masoretic text is the traditional Hebrew text. The translators of the KJV and of most modern translation, uh, translations use the Masoretic text. However, some ancient Hebrew manuscripts among the Dead Sea Scrolls do contain the clause. That's a very interesting find. Likewise, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, there was a time when the Hebrew text was translated into Greek. That was primarily, by the way, unless I have misread something, uh, that was the primary text used by the early church, the Septuagint. There are some that really debate that, so we're not going to go into the debate at this point. But it makes for fascinating um, and sometimes sleep-inducing reading. So the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures is called the Septuagint. Uh, you will usually see an LXX in a text and LXX means the 70, means the Septuagint. All right, there were supposedly 70 translators. Even that's debated. So the clause, and let all the angels of God worship him, appears in the Septuagint. And now why is that important? Because it had to be translated from a Hebrew text. So you can imagine why this is so hotly debated. And again, I don't usually like to bring these things up. But we do have people here. We do have brothers and even sisters in the Lord who, do, uh, who really study the Bible at home. And as you study the Bible, you study and look in some of the commentaries, you're going to run into these things. Uh, John MacArthur speaks about this with some regularity. He'll talk about the text, the, the issues in the text. But the thing is not to drag it out. Uh, the point is simply to say, this is, this is a hotly debated verse, and why wouldn't it be? It's a command for the angels to worship Jesus. Why would that not be a controversy? Why would that not be brought up into controversy? It is clear. Let all the angels of God worship him. Now, some Bible uh, scholars argue that the verse being quoted is not Deuteronomy 32, 43, but, verse, uh, but Psalm 97, verse 7. Psalm 97, verse 7. The KJV puts it this way. Confounded be all they that serve graven images, that boast themselves in idols. Worship him, the living God, all ye gods, little g. Little g. Well, wait a minute. That's not the same as angels. Well, yes, it is. Why? The Hebrew word translated gods as Elohim. Elohim does not mean God. It means mighty ones. And our God is the mighty one. The 
one. Now, uh, it, much to my shock, years ago, when I discovered this, I was arguing with uh, Mormons and others. They love to go to those passages where, where created beings are called gods. <clears throat> now, and they, they can do so because the Bible does this. Uh, the, the King James is as clear as it can be. Idols are sometimes called gods. They're not true gods by nature, but they are the object of people's worship. All right? <clears throat> they are so-called mighty ones to which people bow down. Now, Israel's judges and angels are sometimes called gods, small g, because they're mighty. A judge is mighty, not because he can pump iron. He is mighty because he's been appointed to rule, to judge according to God's law. Not his own mind, but according to God's law. And therefore, he is in God's place. Therefore, within Jewish society, judges were God's, little g, in the sense of their representation of God among the people and bringing the law of God, judging what was going on in their lives by God's word. It's the same thing for angels who are also called sons of God in the scripture. So <clears throat> sons of God implies some relationship to God, some kind of father-son relationship. Now, caution, huge caution. Some of you may even have your, your flashing lights going off right now. But the, uh, there, there is within uh, uh, some of the charismatic groups the heresy that picks up on these kinds of things to say we're little gods. All right, we're just all little gods. This is not true. It is a lie. It is false doctrine. And that's not what we're teaching. <laughs> Please be clear on that. What we're saying is that there is language that once we begin to look at it and think about it through the whole scripture, we have to ask some questions. How could the word gods be applied to angels? Right? It's not because they are gods by nature. It is that they are considered mighty ones. And so that's the notion behind the word Elohim, a mighty one, a mighty person. So it can be applied to more than just God. Yehovah or Yahweh or Jehovah is God's name as God. So it appears, after all that, it appears that the, the author of Hebrews was using uh, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. <clears throat> now, what world are we talking about? That's the next question. What world are we talking about? The battery died on my clock. I'm happy about that. You might not be. I'm sitting here thinking, no, it's not five to six. I haven't been going that long. <clears throat> okay. We want to get to this next part, and we want to move on to the end. 
what world are we talking about? That sounds like a strange question. But now that I have your attention, the Holy Spirit says, when, in verse 6, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, verse 6, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. This is another dispute, but not as big as the last one. I'm very thankful we can move through that fairly quickly. I say these things because, again, not only do we have people that, that do study here, we even have some who are taking seminary courses. They are pressed to get down and to dig into the text. We're not always going to do that, but we always want what we're doing to come from having dug into the text. <clears throat> so the Holy Spirit says, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, the subject of the sentence, he means God, when God bringeth the first begotten into the world. Now, I know how almost all of us would immediately uh, define the world that's being talked about here. And we can probably think several places in the scriptures where all that would apply. That would apply here. That would apply there. And you'll see that in a moment. So when did God bring the Son into the world? And what, into what world is the Hebrews author talking about? <laughs> Commentators and theologians have wrestled over this for centuries. Not surprised, I'm sure. Many believe that this verse looks back to Jesus' incarnation in Bethlehem. When he brings the first begotten in, it's probably uh, preached in thousands of churches every December, you know, and uh, this kind of verse is immediately associated with Jesus' incarnation. Uh, and there, you know, there are reasons for it, as with any theological and interpretational decision. When the angel of the Lord appeared to shepherds in the field, in context of Luke, he announced that Christ the Lord, Christ the Lord was born. And suddenly there was an angel, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace, goodwill toward men. And that's Luke 2.13. Now some believe that bringing the firstborn, again, means Christ the firstborn from the dead at his second coming. There would be those who think of it as the second coming, not his birth. By the way, the, uh, one thing to bear in mind is the passage there in Luke doesn't say that the angels worshiped the baby in the manger. They worshiped God for sending the Lord. <clears throat> but I mean, now, uh, again, this is not one to take up as a, as a cudgel. Some believe that bringing the firstborn means Christ at his second coming. And others believe... Now, this is when it begins to stretch just a little bit. Others believe that when God brings the first begotten into the world, it means Christ's ascension into the eternal world of heaven. Now, that may sound a little odd to you, but there are a couple of reasons for that. 
the context of bringing all these scriptures to bear is to magnify Christ as he is at the Father's, seated at the Father's right hand. This is the day, quote, that he is called the Son. Well, in one sense, he's always been the Son, but we've talked about that numerous times now. I trust we're all clear on that. But now there's something new that's taking place. The incarnate Son of God has ascended into glory and is seated at the highest level of authority and rule in the universe. What's the other way that they conclude this? It's not only that it, it, it is seen as the context. It's being said in the light of Christ sitting at the Father's right hand. Well, the Greek word translated into the English word world is not the usual word translated that way. There's a Greek word. I don't generally throw these around out of the pulpit. The, the, the normal word for world, God so loved the world, is cosmos. We get our word cosmos from it. Right? <clears throat> but this word is different. It's oikonomia. It's a word that we get our word economy from. <clears throat> But the, the point is that that word in Greek only appears two times in Hebrews. The other word is used at various places. It's only appeared, it only appears two times. The first one is right here when he brings the first begotten into the world, quotation marks. <clears throat> but in chapter 2, verse 5, it says, For unto the angels... Hath he not put in subjection to the world to come? Whereof we speak. He talks about the world to come. He talks about the spiritual uh, Jerusalem. He talks about the spiritual, the, the heavenly Zion. He points to this throughout the letter. So it is Quite possible that when he says the world to come, that that's the world he's talking about and that the scriptures ultimately pointed to. Because that's the ultimate world. This one's going to burn. Time is coming when this is going to be gone and made new. But there's a new world coming so, and that world is the world of glory and eternity. The world to come is the world that Jesus presently inhabits. That's where he is. That's more real. That's more powerful. That's more transforming than anything going on here in the world, this world. So you can ponder all of those things. I set them again once before you because you can sit down and read the Puritans. You can sit down and read Spurgeon. You can sit down and you can read dozens of commentators and you will get lots of different thoughts on this particular point. But I, I only offer those because these are the ones that generally those who are evangelical have held to. For, for a long time, it was, it was primarily just set there uh, in, the, in, in Christ's birth. So, <clears throat> having said all that, 
Whether you believe it's the incarnation, many are on your team. Whether you believe it's Christ's second coming, many are on your team. <laughs> and whether you believe it's the world to come, there's an increase in those who are beginning to think in those terms because of the context. But whichever one you believe that the word of God is setting before us, the point does not change. Whether you think it's his birth, his second coming, or the world that he now inhabits, it doesn't change. Because what is the author's point? What is the Holy Spirit's purpose in quoting that? Jesus is God. Let all the angels worship him. It would be blasphemy to worship Jesus Christ. Utter blasphemy to worship Jesus Christ if he were just a good man. If he were just a little step above human, it would still be idolatry. He is the God man. God. And that's how the letter begins. God. And we are pointed to the notion of a ruling and a reigning king. That's what that is all about. You may look and wrestle and pray over that passage and determine what world is being talked about, but don't do it to the point of missing why it's there. It's there to say Jesus is God. He is to be worshipped. Oh, I don't know about you, but that, that grips my soul. Listen, <clears throat> all other worship is idolatry. All other worship is idolatry. God said through the mouth of Isaiah, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither shall my praise to graven images. Yet the Lord Jesus could stand on earth and pray and say, give me back that glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. <clears throat> God will not share his glory and he will not permit worship of any sort, religious worship, other than himself. For him to tell all the holy angels would be utter blasphemy and contradiction if Jesus were anything but God. The addition of humanity does not make him an idol. He has been glorified. He is the God-man. Oh, Hebrews is full of mysteries. But the more you stay with it, the more you begin to see it is so Christ-centered. It is so Christ-centered. By commanding all the angels to worship the Son, the Father is calling him God. We see something of that glorious, unspeakably beautiful, matchless worship of Christ in Revelation chapter 5, verses 4 through 14. I want to, I want to read that to you as we've come to a close. <clears throat> What's it like for Jesus to be worshipped? Well, we need faith and the whole in him and the Holy Spirit to help us understand the word. But just grasp this. Listen carefully. What do you mean when we say worship? Well, here's just one picture. And I beheld, says John. I beheld. 
And lo, in the midst of the throne. Where? In the midst of the throne. And of the four beasts. And in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain. We don't have to have a commentary to figure out what that is. That is the Lord Jesus. The Lamb of God that takes away the, world, the sin of the world. That's, it's written by the same author as John's Gospel. He's keeping the imagery. Here is the Lamb of God. <clears throat> and he, the, the slain Lamb took the book out of the hand of the majesty on high. I cannot paint the mental picture that I would like to. But when he had taken the book, it's a scroll. When he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb. Now, that's a strange picture, is it not? How many of us could imagine big beasts and creatures with eyes all around falling down in front of the lamb? The lamb doesn't seem very impressive, Right? But it's a, it, it is simply a symbol. It's telling us this is Christ. He was the Lamb of, of God slaughtered. Slaughtered. And why? For our sins. When he took the book, the four beasts of the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, odors which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song, saying... Thou art worthy to take the book. Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and hast made us unto our God kings and priests. Do you understand that? He's talking about you and me. The lamb has made us kings and priests by his blood. If we believe that and lived more in that way, we might see a greater power and impact of our lives upon others. We are and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. We would say millions. There were millions of angels. These extraordinary, powerful creatures. Millions shouting, saying with a loud voice. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. It's like they're running out of words for Him. Let's use every word that we can to magnify Him, to hold Him up high. Worship. May all of this come up through us and by God's power, worship the Son. Worship the Lamb that was slain. Worship Him because He poured out His blood for the salvation of sinners. Not nice people. People like you and me. They're shouting. It's glorious. They are thundering. 
he goes on to say, and every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, everything, everything, blessing and honor and glory and power, blessing and honor and glory and power. Do you think there was somebody going, okay, some of you are a little sleepy today. Let's see if we can ramp this up some. Did you overdo it yesterday? You don't have any energy to worship the Lord today? No. It is full, full power. They're worshiping him for all they're made to be. No cracking voices. No off-key singing. You know, nobody out of, uh, out of order. It's just magnificent, beautiful, heavenly, thunderous praise. It says, blessed glory, a blessing, honor, and glory, and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Who's sitting there on that throne? David's descendant. Jesus is ruling and reigning now in splendor to thunderous, glorious worship. I don't know if you can shake heaven, but if you can, it must be shaking in the, in the unbelievable love and adoration. Nobody's going, oh, do we have to worship again? Wait a minute, we were just here last week. Do we have, I mean, do we have to? Hey, people say things not too far from that. Worship. Oh, worship the king, all glorious above, and gratefully sing his power and his love. It was his power that saved your soul. You should be a worshiper. And that's exactly what the writer of the Hebrews is telling us. He has told us that God has commanded all the angels to worship him. Millions upon millions of them do it. I can't imagine what it sounds like. But I want to be in the crowd. I hope you do. I hope God has made you a worshiper of Jesus Christ. If he saved you, he's made you a worshiper. If you have a problem with worship, you should be checking into the word of God. And examining yourself. You should be saying, I can't wait for the next opportunity for us to gather on the Lord's day and shout his praise. Magnify him. Lift up my voice. Because he's worthy. Heaven recognizes it. That's what's going on. He's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Nothing, nothing compares to the splendor of the worship taking place in heaven. Oh, that we could know it. If we could just hear it one time. It would encourage us, I know. The Lord doesn't do that. He just says, I gave you my son. Come worship him. So every Lord's Day ought to be special to us. We remember him when we're done. God never conferred upon any angel at any time, anywhere in the pages of the Old Testament, the name Son. 
as he does here in Hebrews. This is uniquely the inheritance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only so, because angels are creatures, they are never to be worshipped, but the Holy Ghost shows us here that the will of Almighty God is that the very angels of God bow in glorious worship to Jesus Christ. And we should be joining our voices to them with all our hearts. With all our hearts. Though the angels participated in the giving of the law to Israel, Jesus is the living and eternal word of God given to us by our God the Father. May we worship him as long as we have breath. Amen. O Christ, thou art the fountain, the deep, sweet well of love. The streams on earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. There to an ocean fullness, thy mercy doth expand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. The Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. O oh, Jesus, may our hearts today, in our prayers, our singing, and the hearing of thy word, brought glory and honor to thee and thee alone. Bless thy dear children for the rest of this day. May we use it to thy glory. May it bear much fruit of joy and peace and gladness. May it all be to thy everlasting praise. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would please stand. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's go in his name.